Listeners like you keep us going on the Historian's Podcast. Please make a contribution by clicking the GoFundMe link at our website, bobcudmore.com. I'm Rick Herrera, author of Feeding Washington's Army, Surviving the Valley Forge Winter of 1778. And this is a book about the maturation of George Washington's leadership as a general, as a strategist, and as a commander of the army. It's also a retelling of the very familiar tale of Valley Forge, but in exposing new things that you may not have known. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. As he said, Rick Herrera, author of Feeding Washington's Army, Surviving the Valley Forge Winter of 1778. How did the army end up spending the, that winter in Valley Forge? Thanks for asking that, Bob. And uh, before I go on, a little bit that I am required to say, nothing that I say reflects the views of the U.S. Army War College, the U.S. Army, or the U.S. government. They are strictly my own. And I hope that they don't <coughs> reflect the Continental Army. I don't want to give away any secrets of George Washington. In any case, <laughs> okay. the, um, Washington uh, selects Valley Forge after a trying campaign, the uh, Philadelphia campaign of 1777, the uh, British had landed near Head of Elk, Maryland in August of 1777 and started marching toward Philadelphia, the American capital. Washington fought them in a series of battles, and in each one, he successfully managed to lose. That said, though, he was able to avoid the army's destruction, which is something that General uh, Sir William Howe, the British commander, was really trying to do. But he also, the army also held together pretty well despite these successive defeats. So here it is, December of 1777. Washington draws up the army on a wonderful uh, ridge line at White Marsh, Pennsylvania, just north of Philadelphia. He wants the British to have one go at him. He's set up, his army is dug in, his soldiers are waiting. General Howe marches his army out, looks at the defenses and says, I think not. He had memories of uh, Bunker Hill back in June of 1775, in which he had personally led the attacks. Uh, a phenomenally brave man. He had a sense not to destroy, not to destroy his army in attacks against Americans in fortifications. So, Hal marches back. Washington talks to his generals. He asks them, essentially, what's next, gentlemen? He, is actually, he was actually contemplating a winter campaign, which sounds pretty astounding if you think about what had just transpired. The Continental Army had uh, just lost a major battle on the 11th of September at uh, Brandywine. Mm -hmm. It had attacked at Germantown in October and got thrown back. So here it is coming off of a series of defeats. But Washington, an aggressive commander, is thinking about going on the attack once again. Now, at first it sounds a little bit mad, but then you remember what had taken place the year before. He had launched a counterattack at Trenton and mauled a Hessian brigade. He then withdrew, fought another, came back, fought another battle at Trenton, fought another battle at Princeton, and in all three, over a period of 10 days, Washington and the Continentals and the local militia had won. 
these fights had caused the British Army to fall back on their bases of support in New York, collapsed their entire lines of communication throughout New Jersey, and incited the Forage War, which is essentially an uprising of the New Jersey militia against British and Hessian troops. So it had been a strategic success. So why not try it again? The Army had seasoning. Its officers had another year of experience. Many of its soldiers had re-enlisted. They were veteran troops. Washington talks to his commanders. Ultimately, they decide it's best not to risk it, because even if they were able to attack and drive the British out of Philadelphia, it would have been an empty game. There was nothing to be had by taking Philadelphia once again. The British Army, in Washington's view, could simply withdraw its ships, the Royal Navy's ships, rather, in the Delaware River, and wait out the Americans. He converses with, he writes, rather, with local governors, uh, mostly of Pennsylvania and New Jersey, also Delaware and Maryland. And one of the things that Washington uh, knew throughout the war, and he matures as he commands the army, is the significance of the army as not only the representation of a Second Continental Congress, Mm -hmm. the writ of government, but it's also a representation of the American people armed and in rebellion, fighting for their political independence. After discussing these ideas with his generals, discussing ideas with the governors, Washington will will heed the advice of uh, William Alexander, sometimes known as Lord Sterling, and settle on a a location in the Great Valley, so essentially Valley Forge. Hmm. Valley Forge is is a good location in many ways. It's a bad location in others. Essentially, it's a compromise, and like all compromises, nobody's happy. Right. <laughs> so the, the army, uh, he takes the army into Valley Forge. What it allows him to do is to remain close enough to Philadelphia in order to challenge British control of southeast Pennsylvania. It's far enough away, however, to make sure that his outposts can provide ample warning in case the British should decide to advance upon him. Uh, It also allows Washington and the Army to bolster the writ of government, not only of the Second Continental Congress, but also of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And so here the Army stands in the stead of civilian government. Washington understood profoundly the connection between politics and military strategy. And in fact, you you cannot divide or separate politics from warfare. All warfare is politics in a different fashion. Mm-hmm. So Washington decides to take out to set into Valley Forge, and he will essentially build what is essentially the fourth largest city in British North America. Yeah, I didn't think of it that way, but uh, it, it is because what Washington has something like uh, ten thousand soldiers, or maybe not that many. He marches in with about ten thousand or so. Absolutely. So that's a pretty big a population for, a, as you said, colonial America. So he's in Valley Forge for the, for the winter. The British are over in Philadelphia? Correct. The Continental Army will uh, march in in December. It will remain there through May and early June of 1778. The British, in turn, had occupied Philadelphia, and they would, and they would remain there until May when they marched out. 
And so we let both armies holding positions and um, looking for opportunities, although the British actually spent most of their time looking for food and supplies. Uh, one of the problems that they encountered was the fact that they were never able to have as many supplies on hand as their rule of thumb suggested, which is about six months. They only hit that, I think, about twice during the entire war. In terms of the British end of this, the British supplies, that they depended a great deal on, on getting things shipped in from the mother country, maybe like American forces uh, do these days. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and the, the British, at first, the, uh, the British uh, had been thinking, you know, when we when we uh, send over our, our large force, we're going to be able to subsist off the countryside. They're not able to do it. So most of the supplies that the British Army eats that uh, and uses come from England and depots in Ireland. And those, those cross the Atlantic Ocean. It takes weeks. They're also supplementing their rations uh, with fresh provisions from the countryside, wherever they operate. They're also getting firewood from the local area. Often they're getting uh, forage and hay from places as, uh, like Rhode Island as well mm-hmm. as the local areas. So they're supplementing much of what they're getting from the mother country, from Ireland, with local supplies. But the bulk of their foodstuffs, the uh, preserved meats, the grains, so much of it, the biscuit, that's all coming from uh, across the Atlantic. What is forage? Well, there are two ways of looking at forage. Forage is the stuff that you feed animals, um, and that can be dry or fresh. But... Um, Foraging, the verb, actually speaks to the army sending out bodies of soldiers. And these can vary from a few dozen up through uh, half the army, which is uh, what Lord Howe, or excuse me, not Lord Howe, but General Sir William Howe, Lord Howe being his brother, but General Howe did on several occasions in Philadelphia. So sending out thousands of soldiers to scour the countryside, to look for food, supplies, anything else that the Army needs in order to subsist. So the Mm -hmm. act of foraging is basically living off of the countryside and um, forcing the the area that you are occupying to support you. Mm -hmm. And did Washington's Army do that? Washington's Army does it. He does it, however, pretty reluctantly. You know, one of the reasons that, they, that the Army had to launch this foraging expedition in February of 1778 was because of the collapse of the Continental Army's commissariat, and that's responsible for feeding the soldiers, but also the quartermaster general's office. And the quartermaster handling uh, supplies, uh, wagons, uniforms, all of those things. And it's really deeply ironic that the Army takes up post at Valley Forge, and it begins to starve amidst a land of plenty. They're surrounded by rich farmland. Mm-hmm. The problem is that the system the Continental Congress had set up in order to prevent corruption, but also to prevent the accumulation of power by the army, really set into motion a train of disastrous events for the army, who suffered the soldiers. And so because of a series of regulations 
stipulating things like uh, the purchasing agents having to pay their own money and then get reimbursed and many other things, uh, putting up bonds to ensure good behavior, to ensure trustworthiness. All of these things came together and worked against the efficient functioning of the commissariat and the much larger quartermaster supply system. And so the soldiers suffered because of this. It's not because the Congress wanted to hurt the soldiers. Rather, in good 18th and even earlier 17th century uh, Whiggish liberal thought, armies were seen as engines of potential tyranny. And they understood that liberty, the people's freedom, the people's ability to lead their, lead their lives unmolested, that armies representing power could oppress them. And so as politicians responsible to their people, they had to look out for the people and make sure that the army did mm-hmm. not threaten the people's liberties. So where did Washington's army get the f- food to uh, continue on through the winter? Well, they, they did They did get <clears throat> some supplies through the normal channels, but mm-hmm. not nearly enough. Um, as I said, the system had broken down. Besides the, the, the problems because of uh, Congress's uh, acts, you also had problems with the contractors, uh, the wagon masters. Many of the, 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 these wagon masters would not even march their, um, their specified miles. They'd start out late and early. Some of them dump barrels of food on the side of the road. Others siphoned off the brine to, uh, that would preserve food, which caused food to spoil. A host of other problems with them. So what, what Washington does in February, and this is after he sends a pretty honest, some pretty honest uh, correspondence out saying that if the Army does not get food soon, it's going to have to disperse. He decides to send out this foraging expedition under the command of Major General Nathaniel Green, who, and no offense to the fans of Hamilton or Alexander Hamilton, Green is Washington's right-hand man. When he needs something done, he trusts Green to do it. So he dispatches Green and anywhere from 1,200 to 1,400 soldiers, second-in-command, Brigadier General Anthony Wayne, who's anything but mad, and they go into southeast Pennsylvania to scour the countryside for food, provisions, mm-hmm. and other supplies that the Army needs. Rick Herrera, I first heard him speak at this year's American Revolution Conference, sponsored in the Mohawk Valley by the Fort Plain Museum. I bring that this up at this point. We were having our own troubles up here. The revolution after the big battle at Saratoga was a, a civil war, and there were a lot of raids and <clears throat> burning of crops and so forth. I sort of had heard tell that the... Farmers of upstate New York sent provisions down to uh, Washington at Valley Forge. Is that true or not? Well, yeah, and I, I, I really like the fact that you mentioned the, the Civil War aspect. You know, the, the American War for Independence was a civil war within the British Empire, <clears throat> as well as a civil war within the 13 colonies, later uh, 13 states. But uh, to, to get to your, your, 
point about upstate New York, purchasing agents were active everywhere trying to get supplies. Most of the salt and, and beef cattle, however, did come from New England, which was a major cattle raising center in the 18th century, much of it from Connecticut. Although supplies, including salt, were certainly coming out of New York, and these purchasing agents were really doing their darndest to try and help supply the army. Could the war have been lost at Valley Forge? You know, I don't know if could have been lost, given that the um, desire for political independence, and I won't say freedom, because even before the war, uh, white British Americans were among the freest people on earth. The British still had a chance, an outside chance, of reasserting some measure of control. And would it have lasted for long? I don't think so. Because the American colonies, the political leadership, they had already reached a state of political maturity by the 1760s. And this is a war in which politically mature people were telling the mother country, it's time for us to go out on our own. We can handle it on our own. It's time for you to cut us loose. So, mm. you know, a, a bit, quite a bit of mismanagement on the British side with the politicians. Was there a chance? I think they might have had a chance, but to what end and for how long? Would it have actually been worth the effort, the treasure, mm. the blood? The- um, at Valley Forge, women were there, right? Uh, cared for the soldiers. There's sex, of course. They, uh, there were a couple of well-known incidents where women from Philadelphia brought shirts and oxen out to the soldiers. But this was common, was it not, to have females at a at a big military encampment? Generally, you would have uh, generally for senior officers, generals in particular, their wives might spend the winters with them uh, when the <laughs> army was quarters. You would also have uh, women who served as laundresses, some who might have served as nurses. You also had with the with the sutlers, and these are these were essentially civilian um, civilians selling goods to soldiers. You'd have this civilian community that attached itself and became, in a very real sense, a part of the army community, and that included women as well. And so very common, often you would have children, uh, you know, these, many, many of these women were married uh, legally and otherwise to soldiers or to the sufferers. Was Valley Forge ever attacked by the British during or the encampment attack? No, it wasn't. Uh, when, and in fact, when Washington sent out this foraging expedition, this presented a great opportunity to General Howe, because Washington sent out, even though twelve to 1,400 soldiers doesn't sound like a lot, this represented a, a large proportion of the armed, able-bodied, uniformed, <laughs> healthy soldiers who mm-hmm. could actually go out and conduct active operations. And Howe chose not to do it. One of the reasons, and there were, there were several, one of the reasons is that Valley Forge, and this is something that I encourage people to, to uh, look at or to try and shift their frame of reference, rather than looking at Valley Forge as this place of suffering, think of it, which it was, but think of it as an armed encampment 
something of the 18th century version of the modern-day forward operating base. And so this is a home of an active field army that's doing the stuff of real armies, stuff that modern-day soldiers would understand, going out patrolling, manning observation posts, all of these things. But uh, the, the, the encampment has a series of fortifications, redoubts, it's, uh, in other words, uh, small forts. It's got entrenchments, and they cover all of the main roads leading into camp. But in front of the camp, there were also uh, active patrols be, uh, being mounted by the militia as well as the Continental Army's light dragoons, the cavalry force. There were also outposts manned by officers like Captain Henry Lee of the 1st Continental Light Dragoons. So Washington has an early warning system, as it were. But mm -hmm. Howe declines attacking it. He does, though, in uh, March, decide to take a chance when Nathaniel Green cuts Anthony Wayne loose, sends him across the Delaware River in the, into uh, West Jersey, or South Jersey as it's better known today, in order to extend the foraging. Mm -hmm. Once Wayne is there, Howe realizes you know what, now I've got a chance. And he'll dispatch roughly a division's worth of soldiers, two full brigades, in order to try and bag Wayne. He's only got about three to 400 soldiers under his command. He's outnumbered upwards of eight to one, and the British fail to capture him. Mm -hmm. They, instead of going after Wayne and looking for combat, the British will instead turn to what they've been doing all winter which is foraging on their own. Mm -hmm. So Wayne is able to move through New Jersey. I don't know the, the count of the head of cattle or swine that he was able to collect. Mm -hmm. uh, the records, I simply haven't been able to find them. And if they're out mm -hmm. there, I sure hope I, I can see them someday. But he's able to get them past the British successfully, even though they do make some half-hearted attempts to try and capture him and his soldiers. What was Valley Forge like? Did the soldiers and the others live in tents? Or they built huts, did they not? I mean, they, and if so, where did the material to build it, to build them come from? When the army marches in, the quartermaster general has already laid out the various brigade encampments. So they, you know, hey, this is where the Pennsylvanians go. This is where the Connecticut troops go and all of that. And then they... Then Washington gives out orders to start constructing huts. And what they'll do is start scouring the countryside, cutting down trees, using the trees to start building a scent, what essentially look like cabins. They're not terribly uniform. It's essentially get them up as quickly as possible. We want to get the soldiers under cover of some sort in order to protect them from the winter, from the, the, the elements of snow and the rain and the cold. And so Washington orders them to get this done as quickly as possible. And so Valley Forge itself would have been pretty treeless. Most of the approaches, um, in other words, the ground dropping away to the south and to the, uh, to the um, east would have been treeless as well. The soldiers going out, cutting down the trees, using those for their huts, but also using trees to help stabilize fortifications using trees for firewood. I mean, listen, you know, we, have, we live today in a, an oil-burning society. Back then, it's a, a wood-burning wood society. Wood-burning, yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. So the the countryside would have been pretty much uh, stripped of trees. What kind of winter was it? I mean, sometimes we have winter. Sometimes we have winter. What was it like uh, in 1778 in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania? The weather was all over the place. the The world was going through what uh, what we know as the 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 uh, Little Ice Age, and so it was a tremendous period lasting uh, lasting a, a couple of centuries or longer. And so during that winter, the records varied day to day. You might have snow that was that was ankle deep. And in some cases, people in Philadelphia were able to use sleighs to ride in the streets. The next day, it might melt. That might be followed by rain. Several mm-hmm. occasions, the creeks overflowed because it rained so hard. And so the weather patterns are all were all over the place. Some days were beautiful, you know, just brisk weather, sunny, not too bad. Other days, miserable, cold winds. You never quite knew. The really bad winters, though, came at Morristown, New Jersey, the preceding year and the year after. What happened next? While at Valley Forge, uh, Washington takes this time to start reconstituting the army, to start rebuilding it. Recruits come in. The, uh, the states are pro- starting to provide some of their quotas, never all of them. The army's never at its fully authorized paper strength. Its supplies start to come in in the spring. It starts to build up its strength. Drill gets standardized across the board, and that's really the one of the major contributions of the Baron de Schleudern. Uh, he, he doesn't actually introduce drill. He standardizes it for the Army. He introduces also things like the property book. You know, we've got to account for property. But the Army uh, drills, sends out patrols, continues doing what it's been doing all winter, and Washington is getting ready for the spring campaign. He's, he was an aggressive commander, and he's all, he was always looking for an attempt for the right moment to, have, to come to blows with his enemy. Well, earlier, General Sir uh, Henry Clinton had replaced General Sir William Howe as commander of British forces. Clinton, in May, will begin to march the arm, will begin to evacuate Philadelphia and start to march toward New York. In June of 1778, both commanders, in many ways, get their wishes, and they will fight at the Battle of Monmouth. Washington attacks the British rearguard. The Continentals acquit themselves pretty well, so Washington's able to claim a victory. Clinton, he's able to get his um, army to the, uh, across New Jersey and able to board ships. He's able to... Uh, save his supply trains, he too can claim a victory. Both mm. armies acquitted themselves uh, very well in the fight. Essentially a, a tactical draw. But in both cases also, you can claim strategic victories for both sides. Rick Herrera is uh, author of Feeding Washington's Army. He's visiting professor of military history at the U.S. Army War College at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, Previously, he taught at the Army War College in Fort Leavenworth. He has served in the Army as an armor and cavalry officer in the U.S. Army. We're basically really running out of time, but I have very little knowledge of 
the uh, Army War Colleges. Uh, it sounds like the U U.S. Army is running, uh, you know, a, a chain of colleges around the country. Is that how it is? All of the services have got institutions that are part of the larger professional military educational system, or PME. And so roughly every seven years or so, officers who make it a career will go through some form of PME. And this is part of their education to make them better informed, better thinkers, better leaders, um, to become the officers that our soldiers in our country and our armed forces deserve. Rick Herrera, author of Feeding Washington's Army, Surviving the Valley Forge Winter of 1778. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Please help us keep the Historian's Podcast going with a donation to our 2022 Fund Drive. You can donate via GoFundMe. You'll find that link on our website, bobcudmore.com. And thank you very much. <laughs>